As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Anna Bogutskaya. And I'm Ella Kemp. On the show this week, Baz Luhrmann crowns Austin Butler the king of rock and roll in Elvis. Scott Derrickson and Ethan Hawke return from the MCU to the horror genre in The Black Phone. And on Film Club, we'll be dancing along to Baz Luhrmann's delightful debut, Strictly Ballroom. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Guys, iconic crew this week. And this is, I think this is going to be really fun. Like we've got pretty wild selection ahead of ourselves but not whilst we're recording but by the time this comes out the new issue will be announced and it's 50th anniversary of pink flamingos and of course you're both in the issue writing various things Uh, have you been a fan of pink flamingos for a while i remember being kind of traumatized by it as a child and only recently kind of was able to appreciate it for what it was well not as a child as a teenager i suppose (laughs) <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. why are you watching this as a child? <laughs> Although, no judgment. I was watching way weirder shit than that when I was a child. But, but um, I've always been a fan of John Waters. I think I had, I mean, had is generous, still have the contrarian streak in me. So I purposefully kind of sought out things that, you know, when you're a maximalist as a kid, you know, what is the weirdest? What is the most extreme? What is the most bizarre film or book that you can watch? Obviously, John Waters popped up really quickly. And I kind of devoured all his films. I wouldn't say actually, I love Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos was not my favorite John Waters. But I I just appreciated his sense of humor instantly and the gritty, cheap um, visuals of all his work and also just the earnest tackiness of it all. I love tacky shit. <laughs> I don't necessarily apply it in my own life, I don't think, but I appreciate the visuals of it very, very much because I think there is a there's an earnest way of doing tacky and there is a really performative way of doing tacky which just never 
never works and you can see it from a mile away but I think when someone just lives in that aesthetic and actually appreciates bad taste and tackiness um, from an honest place you can see it it bleeds through and I think John Waters was always one of those and you know the whole dreamland crew once I learned about that was just so sweet and you know his penchant for true crime as well in such an earnest way was one of the first things that made me feel okay about also really enjoying and knowing too much about serial killers. Well, yeah, truly. I mean, I kind of came to John Waters at first as like, you know, in the kind of 90s and noughties. And he kind of seemed like this kind of pervy elder uncle with like a great twinkle in his eye and I knew hairspray and stuff. So it's kind of nice to go back to the origin of the man and kind of see that he was this like significant counterculture person. Uh, Ella, what about you? You being the kind of young un on the pod this, this week. Guys, please don't kick me out of the crew. Um, I... This I haven't seen Pink Flamingos, and I am looking forward to watching it. And I think I think when, like when I found out that this was on the cover, I thought, good, this gives me the reason to finally watch it, which I'm always quite appreciative of. And I and I love hearing you talk about it and the maximalism of it because it feels like it feels like you're selling it to me as as a fellow. Like, do you like maximalism? Have you seen a Baz Luhrmann film before? Well, I've got just the filmmaker for you. So I'm like. I'm like, yeah, cool, let's go. Um, but you know, he seems fantastic. Like I've, I've been enjoying, I always enjoy, um, I don't know. I find with like press cycles and the kind of inevitable interviews that lots of filmmakers and actors are kind of not forced to do, but you know, a kind of routine things. A lot of the time, I think as someone who's like very much within the film and TV industry, I can kind of gloss over them and feel a bit, um, I don't know, entitled's the wrong word, but I always think I know more than I need to know about these people anyway, so I find the interviews useless. Whereas John Waters, everyone I've been reading, I'm like, you're great, tell me more, I want another interview, a longer one. Um, so, look, I'm coming to this as a novice, I'm looking forward to the issue. Sounds very exciting. I'm really excited for you to watch Pink Flamingos on a big screen for the first time, Ella. I think oh, I, I can't wait. I'm, I really don't subscribe to this like bullshit judgmental approach that film fans sometimes have of like, you haven't seen this film yet, the outrage. No, <laughs> it's just an opportunity to watch something for the first time, usually on a better transfer yeah. or a restoration. I mean, another thing about Pink Flamingos, like, you know, being re-released and everything, I'm not being funny. It's the 22nd of June on the day that we're recording this. Half the year is finished. I haven't given a single film that's new to me five stars this year, which is fine. Ratings are arbitrary, whatever. And I've seen a lot of good films, but I haven't seen anything that's like really blown me away. So this isn't new, but if it's back in cinemas and I can be absolutely blown away by it. Great. I can't wait. Um, it's just amazing to kind of think of like what a controversial film this was at a time, like the amount of like legal battles that he went through. And now, like last year when they were, I was doing some research into the Library of Congress. It's in the Library of Congress now, Pink Flamingos. <laughs> like divine eating dog crap is in the Library of Congress. Layla, <laughs> spoilers. Sorry. I beg your pardon. It's what? <laughs> no, I, and honestly, like there's, the fascinating change of appreciation of John Waters is in and of itself kind of an interesting journey because you're right, like it went from him being a disgusting pervert who should be stopped, you know, banned from ever holding a camera ever again, which he fully embraced and used to his advantage. Like this man is a media savvy filmmaker and it has always been since the 70s and I've always appreciated that from, from him. Also, just an amazing writer. I 
always think of him more as a writer almost than a director even because of just the sheer volume of stuff that he's written and continues writing um well he hasn't really made a movie since the dirty shame but like he went through the same kind of issues with his last movie which was I want to say 2014, 13, something like that. A dirty shame with like Johnny Knoxville and Selma Blair. And it was about, you know, sex ad, sex fetishists. As like he was going through the same kind of stuff with the MPAA as he was with, um, with the censor boards in the 70s with Pink Flamingos and with his other subsequent works. So like it really didn't change that much, even though he already had this, quite established and recognized career behind him um so there's there's a really interesting documentary called this year is not this film is not yet rated where he features quite a lot talking about the battle with the mpaa and a lot of other filmmakers that featured kind of talking about how they battled and had to cut their film or kind of fight for uh, especially sex of an um sex scenes or scenes of an explicit nature and it's it's kind of shocking just how little that changed and all the more power to John Waters for kind of powering through it and always sticking to this very, very uh, bizarrely perverted lane that he chose for himself. I appreciate him deeply. Also, he has like the best saying that I love and I have like on a magnet on my fridge where it, if you, he once said like in an interview or somewhere, if you go home with someone and don't have books in their house, don't fuck them. <laughs> Which I've always taken to heart. <laughs> That's solid advice. Um, so, but, you know, aside from that, in the magazine, uh, as much as we'd love to hear you talk, we'd love to see the words that you have written as well. You guys have both got features in the new issue. Is that right? I interviewed another iconic queer legend, Udo Kier, uh, for, about his new film uh, that's out right now called Swan Song. Um, and it was a hectic interview because it stopped and started about three times. We thought there was some sort of um, issue or fire in Udo's Berlin hotel oh, nice. where he was staying because I had to evacuate it. So within the span of an hour, the interview got cancelled, got back on again, then got moved, then got cancelled, then was back on again. And then finally, and then we couldn't get through. And then finally I managed to speak and he was lovely. Oh, oh my God. God. How you suffer for your art. I <laughs> do, Layla, and I would like a cookie. <laughs> Ella, what about you? Um, I also have an interview in the magazine with another maximalist legend. I like, I can't really believe this interview happened. Um, I I interviewed I interviewed Baz Luhrmann for this issue. I like it feels stupid to even say that. Um, it it was great. He's I mean he's exactly I've wanted to interview this man as long as I have like been watching films and liking films. And I tell everyone who will listen that Moulin Rouge is like the film for me. Um, he was great. The interview was hectic. I mean I thought the interview was hectic. It's not as in, it's not as hectic as yours, Anna. Um, he was you know uh, Baz was in New in his home in New York. Um, I always appreciate when you interview like an actor or a filmmaker on on Zoom and their background feels like it reflects their personality. Um, <laughs> so he so he turned up on the well, so first of all, he turned up on the call and was like wearing this like leather blazer 
and loads of rings and everything. And I was like, yes, Vaz, there you are. And he was in his home in New York and he was sat under what looks like this huge marble staircase. Like a really tall, you could see a lot of the staircase. And he had these two like gorgeous um, lamps next to him. And look, I'm a big fan of interior design. And I do know that some things can look expensive and not be expensive. But some things you see and you're just like, each of these things cost thousands of pounds. Um, Those were the lamps that were next to him. Um, It was all very chic. It was very chic. And then he started the call. And then he kind of like interrupted me as soon as we started. And then he was like, look, if we have like three extra minutes, Ella, do you mind if I eat my breakfast? And I was like, Baz Luhrmann, you do whatever you want. (laughs) Like, do whatever you want. So, you know, he had some granola. We had a nice chat. And it was the best day of my life. Yeah. I I love the idea of Baz Luhrmann as a character in a Baz Luhrmann Mm. film. It seems so apt. I'm so surprised he doesn't cameo in his films. Like, it's the most him thing. I don't understand why he doesn't do it. What a missed opportunity. I genuinely want him to make a eight and a half, a like pain and glory. Make a film about yourself, Baz. Baz by Baz Luhrmann. Baz. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, we've got a very Baz heavy week this week. So that's something to look forward to. Oh my God, spoiler alert, I absolutely love Strictly Ballroom. But yeah, let's, um, first things first, let's look at his latest, Elvis. The film chronicles the life and career of Elvis Presley, from his early days as a child to becoming a rock and roll and movie star, as well as his complex relationship with his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. So Anna, I believe you reviewed this for Little White Lies? I did. I reviewed it straight after the press screening in Cannes, um, which I... It's a perfect place to see a film like this, that level of maximalism as well. I had about three coffees before going into it. I'd had about three hours sleep. It was at 8.30 in the morning as well. You have to specify that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was like a big premiere that I (laughs) stupidly thought I could sneak into. No, (laughs) that was never going to happen. The 8.30 a.m. press screening absolutely high of my face on caffeine um i listen as i mentioned in my review i think there are a certain amount of expectations that come with a Baz Luhrmann film and there's a whole nother set amount of expectations that come with an elvis presley biopic and they, they don't necessarily match together but if you know what you're going into this is such such a ride of a film and because i i do I do love a music biopic, even though 93% of them are shit. <laughs> um, and I love Baz, unironically. This was like a match made in heaven for me. The maximalism of Elvis, the uh, the iconography of Elvis Presley as well, the pizzazz, the music, the movement, the dancing especially. And it fundamentally worked for me on every level. I was, I have to say, dubious about Austin Butler, who plays Elvis, it known him kind of as a as a Disney Channel type star. Like he was he was the boyfriend in the Carrie Diaries, which is where I'd seen him as an adult. <laughs> you know, like Yes. He was a, he was a very pretty boy. That's that's it. That's all I knew him as. I was like, okay, you're a perfectly pretty boy. You will be playing the boyfriend well into your adulthood. And then maybe you'll get like a role as a doctor on a Grey's Anatomy spinoff or something or reboot later on. Oh so my good. God. <laughs> oh my God, this man, this young man, like completely 
I know like being method and whatever now is not fashionable anymore because Jared Leto ruined it. But um, he really does embody the idea, I think, of Elvis. This whole film for me, and I think the best way to approach it and enjoy it is to think of it as a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale about Elvis. It's not a biopic. It doesn't, I don't think it ever attempts to be historically accurate. I don't think it attempts to be accurate to Elvis's life, but it attempts to capture that magic that he had, that he continues to have to make him one of the most imitated musicians and artists of all time. And that's kind of really important because he is so imitated that any representation of Elvis feels like almost a... Uh, not a mockery necessarily, but kind of exaggerated. And we forget how exaggerated the real Elvis was. Mm -hmm. And I think what Butler does here is like he captures the sexiness of Elvis. There's no mockery. It's a very earnest, full-bodied performance. He really goes into the voice. He really goes into the movements. He really goes into, you know, this is where like his pretty boy thing, his physicality really comes into play because Elvis was also a pretty boy. And there's this like, this appeal that he almost doesn't understand at the beginning and he finesses as he finds his place. And that's what the movie zeroes in in. And that's what Baz, I think, zeroes in in with with Austin Butler. It's like, let's remember just how sexy and appealing Elvis was and how transformative that was for audiences, for the music scene. And that's the thing that really stood out for me that really worked like there's things and I'm sure we can you know talk about the framing device of Colonel Tom Parker here who's played by Tom Hanks probably giving him the worst performance of his career I don't think anybody expected that yeah that like why it's completely unnecessary I think I'll tell you why oh tell me why tell me your thoughts (laughs) let me tell you about Baz Luhrmann and his framing devices (laughs) Please oh, do. Please dear, explain my man. this choice. <laughs> Look, I'm not. I'm not happy about it. But what I will say, <laughs> in terms of considering the career of Baz Luhrmann more broadly, um, the man loves a framing device. He loves a narrator. Uh, I think this comes back to his um, his red carpet trilogy, which was uh, Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, and Moulin Rouge. And he had these rules within this trilogy where he wanted to... Um, the first rule... I mean, I can't remember which order it is, but it's like the audience have to be entertained at all times. They have to be kept awake. Um, the world has to be completely heightened and like very performative all the time. And the audience has to know how the film ends from the very beginning. So that is kind of tied into why you've got this narrator i mean he also just loves being this like very dramatic like tragic romantic and i mean we talked about a bit about this in my interview where he was like i'm always walking this razor's edge between romance and complete tragedy and it's all very theatrical anyway but i think (laughs) the framing device has worked at various points in his career i think it works very well in moulin rouge where you've got Christian, the writer, played by Ewan McGregor, who's like typing out this tragic story with with um, Satine, his love, played by Nicole Kidman. And I'm like, yeah, sure, he's a writer. He's writing up the story, whatever. Um, and then the same in The Great Gatsby, where um, Toby Maguire, who plays Nick Carraway, the book's narrator, who like I think that's a really good performance, by the way. Um, that framing device, I think, also works because again, writer, whatever, sure, writing. Um, I understand in theory why he's done this with this film because um, I wasn't familiar. I wasn't like super familiar with Elvis. I know who Elvis is, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know about Colonel Tom Parker or anything. But 
obviously, yeah, like when you see this film and you look into the story and how much Colonel Tom Parker did control him and how much say he had over his career, sure, like, you know, if Baz Luhrmann needed to find an in to make a film about Elvis, yeah, like this man, this controlling, this kind of overarching god devil type thing um makes sense to tell his story um, i just think the issue uh was the direction that tom hanks was given like the performance that he was told to give um because yeah like as you said like who would expect a bad tom hanks performance but uh yeah it's just not it's just not it's not good is it i, I don't know if it's because as you say austin butler's performance is so good um and I think a lot of it comes down to the voice. Like, you know, Tom Hanks is kind of giving Jim Broadbent in Moulin Rouge, but Dutch, um, which, is that Dutch? you know. Is that what that accent was supposed yeah, to yeah, be? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they I said mean, Dutch, but I think you can yeah. say Dutch, but if you don't sound Dutch. You know. Well, exactly. But I mean, I again, I just, I think, I think part of the problem is with what we know of Colonel Tom Parker and how much he constantly wanted to conceal his identity and be, um, you know, indescribable and like impenetrable and weird and shifty and all these things, which, you know, it makes quite a difficult man to play, um, which because he's such a difficult man to play, makes him quite a difficult narrator to believe and latch onto and have as this like device into the film. When on the flip side, you've got Austin Butler who just nails Elvis. Like it's, I was in awe of his voice both singing and talking also we have to say that austin butler sings all of the songs until um elvis is like final years in life because that's when his voice like changes and goes deeper but for so much of the film it's him singing which is just unbelievable um which is incredible i thought you were going to mention the fact that he still hasn't let go of the voice like if you see yeah I don't know if it's it's on purpose or or if he's just like sort of adopted now his voice, but like his actual real life voice changed. It's so weird. Because, yeah, because Anna, I also watched The Carrie Diaries. And so I, (laughs) so when I saw he was casting this, I was like, oh, let's go. (laughs) I'm ready. This is going to be great. And then, um, you know, when I heard him in Elvis, I thought, oh, well, his voice is completely transformed. I don't remember him talking like this. You know, I watched the show a long time ago. But then, yeah, I was watching, I think it was like some video interview he did after Elvis came out. And I thought, oh, I'm interested to see how different his voice is. And And then it was the same. I was like, Am I like am I still hearing the Elvis voice or is he um yeah it's unbelievable I you know fair play I think there's something about like the fact that they need to be such polar opposites everything you said about kind of Baz Luhrmann's uh filmmaking is so spot on and, and I just don't think that Tom Hanks fits no. into the Baz like get another actor there are so many maximalist actors even Joe, Jim Robin would have been great yeah Mm. would have been great but like i don't think tom hanks can go that high he shouldn't have to he does enough he's done enough in his career it's not his style i don't think no. he doesn't really gel and also i i know why the, i understand even in the world of buzz uh, baz in the world of the film why you know elvis is so pristine and beautiful and just pure talent and pure appeal like they've completely smoothed out any edge any of elvis's own um issues or addictions or problematic views or like anything in his history that was like not great yeah. it was like mm, doesn't matter it doesn't matter why oh my God, the he, pills he, he needs the to pills. be like the princess in the tower basically yeah 
And we need to have the cartoonish villain who puts him in that tower. Yeah. Elvis is absolved of all responsibility, which is why I mean, it's like this film is great, but don't think of it as a biopic because if you're going to try to like see, make it see connected to the actual history, it's like, it's not trying to do that. That's not what it's absolutely not trying to do. So the fact that Austin is just so perfect and, and beautiful as Elvis, and it's very much focused as well in his early years. There is no like, old fat Elvis here when he's completely consumed by alcohol and pills there's just like one dubious fat suit towards the end which I'm like I'm just like if you if you didn't want to tackle those years you don't have to do it because because he wasn't like acting in that scene for very long I, I you know I saw the film a while ago but I don't think you see him for more than like 10 seconds of a shot when he's on stage like as as like older Elvis and I'm just like you don't have to like if you don't want to show that you don't have to particularly as you say like because so much of it is showing Elvis in like um such like a pristine light <laughs> my favorite thing about that as well was like towards the also the, the runtime of this film it's like two two hours and 40 minutes or something so you know about that yeah right okay sure like it's whatever the runtime is what it is but the funniest thing within that runtime which I found was like um this montage is maybe half an hour before the end or something and there's a bit and, and then yeah and like but okay there's a lot of montages but then there's a bit towards the end when tom hanks is being like oh and he succumbed to the vices and then like he has the word pills and then there's just one pill that rolls along the table and i'm like awesome yeah his whole addiction is just like that one rolling pill fantastic and i'm just like yeah fair play like you don't want to show it okay great which is why again showing him at the end i'm like if you wanted to stay in keeping with the whole image that you want to get through, like, just don't do this. You don't, you know, you're clearly calling the shots and you don't want to make a, a straight biopic. And why should you? Um, I don't know. I just think, yeah, maybe that last bit was a bit unnecessary. Um, and, oh, another thing I want to say, sorry. <laughs> um, in terms of, I really like the idea of it being like a fairy tale because, yeah, I completely agree. It's not a biopic at all. One thing that I also love, and I kind of got to give credit to like having Colonel Tom Parker as a framing device, even though Tom Hanks, you know. Um, I think what I loved about the film is that quite early on, it kind of puts his hands up and it's like, we're talking about Elvis, the performance, Elvis, the show rather than the human being. Because, you know, you get like the odd touchstone of like, you know, he married Priscilla and like you kind of see him jig about a bit as a child but again like all you see is like him dancing in that moment and then like what the wedding meant and then what how how all of the fans like felt about his dance moves his outfits and everything and it's always just like what about um about what this show meant to people like how Elvis became a brand because you've got like you know kind of some Parker's talking about like merch and everything which I find I find really interesting just having this kind of uh, behind the curtain look of what the star meant in terms of how fans saw it, how much money you could make from it. And, you know, things that are, are very, very relevant today. Like all, all of the, um, you know, so many musicians during COVID when everyone was like, how can we help? They were like, buy my merch. You literally have to buy my shit. Like, that's how I'm going to make money. Um you know, I'm not saying it's exactly that, but I always find it very interesting when people talk about money and you look at, at the people who are actually, um, you know, supporting and and um, elevating your career. Like all of these screaming girls, people make fun of them, but it's like without them, Elvis wouldn't be Elvis. Like that show wouldn't exist. That man wouldn't have got to the heights that he did without all of the silly little fans who screamed their little hearts out. Yeah. And also, you know, you're very right because like we can even bring you back to 
movies and everybody talks you know when we talk about the new hollywood and the start of kind of the blockbuster era the fact that you know it's famous the fact that george lucas kind of kept behind the merchandising rights for star wars um, when nobody had any faith in in a new hope and when that came out obviously that's where the real money is you could argue that like part of the reason why something becomes as culturally huge as it does is because the merchandising is so hugely available like it's everywhere the elvis the elvis face the hair the name you know just it was a fucking board game like this is because he says it because he says at one point because he's talking about you know he's talking about frank sinatra and it's it's really strange to me to think that it's similar eras because i don't associate frank sinatra with elvis at all um he's like I mean, I could be wrong on this, but I've heard them mentioned in the same breath in terms of like the fame and what kind of, um, you know, what they represented. And I don't, I don't know if Baz said this or whether it's in the film, but they were like, you know, Frank Sinatra was famous, but his face wasn't on a board game. Like that's the difference. That's the kind of different level of star. And you've got that today as well. Like, you know, look at, look at One Direction and all the different merch that you had there in comparison to like, I don't know, Oasis. Like you're not, you know, you're not going to have an Oasis board game. Again, terrible comparison points, but that just shows, like, merch is important. Not not that Oasis needed a board game, but anyway. I want an Oasis board game. I know. <laughs> just shouting at your family the whole time. I did. I, th- I mean, I think it had a little bit more to say than just kind of a generic fairy tale. I think all of the stuff that Baz put in about kind of Elvis being almost like the respectable face of black culture within that era was like, I think quite thoughtfully done, which I appreciated. Um, Because there's always been that kind of fraught relationship with kind of what are the true origins of rock and roll and why did we have to like repackage it? And, you know, perhaps people that have been lost from this story and, you know, their contribution to not just Elvis, but to this kind of whole genre. Yeah. I want to shout out Yola, who plays Sister Rosetta Tharp. She is incredible like she's so good and i also love that so many like pivotal black artists who elvis was like admired and also was friends with like the like the actors are so good like kelvin um harrison jr who plays he plays bb king um so good like he's fantastic and he's been fantastic in everything he does and it's like i like it when when you're telling well again but not a biopic but like a film about a famous musician i like it when they when there are the other musicians who played a big part in him coming through and influenced him and like like it was a whole scene he wasn't just on his own the whole time um yeah i thought that was really well done so let's get some scores on this um anna do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect um i'm gonna go five five four the right. anticipation was off the roof because it was Cannes. So everything is heightened. <laughs> Cannes is basically like a film festival if it was run by Baz Luhrmann. Um, so true. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. Was it the coffee and the sleep deprivation? Potentially. Was it the montages? Awesome Butler, the film itself? Everything. Yes, deeply enjoyed it. And yeah, I think it's not, it's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. But even having thought about it afterwards, um, four in retrospect. I think it's really enjoyable. Ella, what about you? I know it's always, if you've spoken to the filmmaker, you do get slightly seduced by their vision, don't you? 
Okay, well, you know what? My anticipation was actually lower than Anna's purely because I think, I think because I love Moulin Rouge so much and, and not being funny, this is the first Baz Luhrmann film that's been uh, newly released in cinemas since I started working as a film critic. So this was going to be like, you know, the first one that I'd talk about, um, which was very exciting. But I think I, because my expectations were kind of so high, the more people I spoke to and the more people were dubious about this, I lowered my expectations because I thought I don't want to look silly if this is a misfire so uh, I it was self-preservation you know I wanted you know to keep your expectations low and then be very pleasantly surprised so anticipation would be a three for me and then I think I'd go four for enjoyment four in retrospect because yeah it was very entertaining like I I felt a bit not weird watching the film but yeah because it felt quite long and like I did manage to, sn- to sneak into the premiere at Cannes and like Maniskin the Eurovision the the Italian band who won Eurovision last year they were sat in the row in front of me and they were like headbanging throughout the whole film and they've got a cover in the film at some point but they were like proper going for it even when it wasn't their song and I was just kind of watching them a lot of the time um it was a strange experience I'm looking forward to seeing it again in cinemas but yeah for um and I think it's really solid it really holds up um and I'm really enjoying just seeing everyone else kind of chew over it because I mean we could talk about this film for another three hours like there's so much to get into um yeah I think it's really exciting three four four please Leila. well I am slightly lower than the both of you um probably three 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 across the board I mean I know that it's it's Austin Butler was brilliant so much of it that I really like but I just could not forgive this Tom Hanks in a fat suit. He was my destiny. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I, I needed to kind of close my eyes every time he appeared on screen. But I, I mean, I thought he was worse than Jared Leto in House of Gucci. I thought he was worse than Colin he Farrell so in much. Batman. <laughs> I just, I thought it was, it was appalling. And, uh, but I do think rightly so, this will be a star making turn for Austin Butler. So if you've got thoughts on Elvis or any of the rest of these films, you can email truth at movies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next up, The Black Phone. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. 
Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In 1978, five children go missing in a suburban Colorado town. Young baseball pitcher Finney Shaw becomes the sixth when serial killer Dub the Grabber throws him in a van. Finney wakes up in a soundproof basement with a disconnected phone and he quickly learns of the phone's ability to transmit voices of the Grabber's previous victims who want to help him escape. Meanwhile, Finney's sister Gwen experiences psychic dreams that send her on a quest to find him. So, Ella, getting over the fact that the Grabber is possibly the crappest name for a serial killer imaginable... How did you think Ethan Hawke did as a villain? Oh, oh, oh. Hi, guys. I didn't like this film. <laughs> I didn't like this film. I'm sorry. Um, look, I like Ethan Hawke a lot. Um, I'm, oh, I'd am i love to hear from him about what happened here. Um, I think he's very good in everything he does. I have heard that he said yes to Scott Derrickson before reading a script for this, which... Sure, I I would believe that because I don't think there's very much in the script for him. Um, you know, I think I think he looks the part because like he can look quite scary and he's a very good actor. Um, so there's that. But I kind of I don't know. I felt like in 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 the first part of the film when the children are kind of talking about the grabber and they're like, "Ooh, careful, black balloons." Ooh, I thought when we see him. And then when Finney eventually gets there and is, you know, having to kind of do battle with the grabber, I thought, oh, great, we're going to learn more about him. You're going to know why he's doing this and who he is and all of that. Also, sorry, I want to say I don't need backstory for like every villain. I don't need to do a whole workshop into his psychology. But I just felt like there was nothing here, um, and which I found really frustrating because I thought like when you have an actor like Ethan Hawke who can go so deep and do so many weird things and like, you know, he's just been in the MCU or whatever. Like, it's, he can do it all um yeah I was just very frustrated because I thought um I don't I don't know if um if I need another film solely focused on the grabber I don't think I do but considering what I felt was given about his character in this film I was like I can tell there's loads more here um and just wasn't really getting any of it um which is a shame and I also think that in terms of um how the how the character was designed like physically with the kind of with the black balloons and the hat oh fun fact i keep calling this film the black hat like it's not called the black hat i mean he has a black hat so i think i'm correct um but i just yeah i just thought it was all quite generic because it's like oh he's got these black balloons because black balloons are scary and and here is a black van make sure you don't look at the black van because that's a scary thing that abducts children and oh part-time magician but magic can be scary and I was just a bit like I thought oh okay great all of these um you know quite obvious things are going to be subverted or we're going to like go in a different direction and it's going to surprise me and it just didn't really which I thought was a shame because 
um you know it, it, it does look quite exciting and so the last bit of his performance is, is he's got these masks on um kind of sometimes covering his eyes sometimes his mouth and all of it and they've got these different kind of like how would you describe the mask they're, they're like the kind of pantomimic ones like they're really hard like a hard shell which is like um what are they called like the anonymous was that what they were called the kind of internet conspiracy theorists it kind of it, it felt a bit like that to me and it felt a bit like that but again I didn't really get anything from like why he was wearing them or like who that was nodding to or whether it was kind of like a mythology thing or a conspiracy or a conspiracy theorist thing or like why you know he needed to hide in that way um because when you see the posters and the trailers I thought okay there's something here like this is gonna go in a bit of a strange place and for me it just never really did I'm afraid I think Ethan Hawke's innocent I think for me the script just didn't give anyone um enough really um but again this is not like this is not my genre this is not my short story I'm not like super familiar with this I will say that before everyone says Jesus Christ you idiot I'm you know I'm I'll take that but yeah going into it being like Ethan Hawke looks scary I'm up for this I was a bit disappointed yeah um I mean I've read the short story and it's told from the point of view of um the little boy or I suppose tween who's been captured um so I was kind of most interested in this from because I love horror films that are told from a child's point of view um in terms of kind of that subgenre, Anna how do you think it worked um I I thought it really worked for me uh I think the fact that it's mostly centered on Finney and it's still through Finney's point of view. Um, there are some things that really flopped a little bit for me in that regard, um, especially to do with the with the dead children that are trying to help him. Um, I there was several points where I thought it's like we don't need this. The construct of the story, the the structure of you know he's talking to these dead kids who don't remember their name after they're they're gone. Who um, he knows their names, he knows their stories because he's been aware of the grabber and the disappearances that have been happening in in his town. Um, and and they're trying to help him. And the fact that he kind of well, I don't I don't want to go into too much detail about what happens, but the conversations he has with them, what they say, but also the sort of injection of hope that each phone call gives, it very quickly shifts from kind of the creepiness of a disconnected phone kind of pulsing and ringing to every phone call is a little ray of light and hope for this kid who was trapped in a serial killer's soundproof basement. Um, It it gives him the necessary context or the tools to actually handle it. Um, And that, I mean, I thought that the central performance by uh, Mason Thames, who plays Finney, because so much of the film is on him just in one room talking to a phone. It's very wordy, a script for a child actor. Um, That really, really worked for me. The thing that really didn't was actually seeing seeing the ghosts of the kids I was like I don't need it <laughs> it's not it's not because it was too much or anything like that I'm like I can hear their voice I understand what's happening it's, it's just a bit schlocky it's yeah, just it's like, like this big like doom and then you see someone like hanging in a yeah. flashing light or whatever I'm like mm. I thought that would like visually could have been done a lot better like I didn't need yeah. it it was so subtle and great without the images of the of the dead kids essentially like talking through the phone but also talking in one part of the room or another it's like I really it's unnecessary and it kind of looks cheap but mm-hmm. to Ella to your point about Ethan Hogg 
I, I kind of have to disagree a little bit because I actually, I mean, I agree that Grabber is a terrible name for a serial killer. It feels very like much anyone like, can grab, yeah. like I can grab. You I know? think it sounds lechy rather than scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's like, it's very much, it feels very much, I know this is based on a Joe Hill a short story and stuff. It very much feels with kind of that brand of the the tree of Stephen King style horror uh, storytelling, uh, so it works on the on the page, I think, but not necessarily on the screen. It just sounds silly when you say I'm in it. Twenty twenty two, truly. But um, I Ethan Hawke really worked for me, and I think mm-hmm. I obviously I understand why he would just say yes to Scott Derrickson at any point because they made Sinister together, and I think Ethan Hawke's kind of foreign genre really works for me and he is really great in that he can be really soppy and gooey and lovely and this and then turn like be really hard hard-edged and even really creepy and lecherous like he is in this film i had just enough of the grabber i think this is where the film really succeeded by being succinct i did not need his backstory i I really like the fact that we just have these little little brushstrokes of things about him, like the way the freak freaks out when him when his mask is pulled off, or the way like the mask shifts. That actually, I I did think about anonymous, but I also thought about the long Cheney mask in London After Midnight. I think you know this and the way that it shifted. It really worked for me. You know the big grin, the mm-hmm. upside down face. It was very theatrical in a kind of childish way, which again gels with what little we know of of the grabber. And there's a couple couple of scenes where he just sits he's just sitting he's waiting those were really chilling because what's he waiting we, for uh, do you Tell know me. what we i don't need to know i can infer I the, the, do. The, the, the places where my mind can go <laughs> when i'm just seeing a little smidge of a horrifying serial killer on screen are way more fucked up than anything that's called <laughs> and, uh, yeah. can, or joe hill can write so i'm like i'm thankful for that because I do, I love serial killer movies and kind of true crime and stuff like that. I hate it when they over-explain. It's like, I don't need your trauma for me to understand that you have a weird thing about, you know, naughty boys and like that sick game that you want to play before you murder kids. Like, that's creepy enough. I just need the, the brushstrokes of it. And I think this is where it really succeeds. I Again, I don't need a prequel. I don't need an explanation. I don't need a DHD thing hog let the story exist on its own terms as it is and this is where it ends i thought i just want to shout out james ransone who has a very underdeveloped character he's just kind of the the buffoonish uh brother of um of the grabber and he he's just really funny he injects a little bit of humor into the film just enough only in a couple of choice scenes but the back and forth between Ethan Hawke and Mason Thames as Finney, I thought was really, really quite chilling. And to honestly, for me, it worked. It worked best when it was um, almost like an escape room thriller mm-hmm. because we spent so much time with Finney that we really get invested in him escaping. We think that it is possible. And then when, you know, there are moments where that whole hope disappears and it is really quite, uh, quite intense. And it's the, it's the fact that the door is there. And the door is open and it might open at any point. That tension, the building of the tension without us ever really knowing the layout of the house, without us ever really knowing what the life of the grabber is like um, outside of the basement is fantastic. Like, oh, yeah. I think that, that I love a silence of the lambs. <laughs> yeah. That little that silence really of the lamb reference I thought was absolutely oh, delicious. Yeah. 
Um, so kind of mixed views on this. I mean, I've got to say, I did find um, the Gwen subplot with her psychic dreams um, just screamed, padding this out from a short, short story. Um, but I, I like the cruelty of the whole town. I like that, you know, there was so much misery in the people's homes. It kind of felt a little bit like, you know, it, I suppose, is the like most mm. common reference that this is kind of almost this town is almost like Derry. It's a cursed place in Colorado. Uh, but let's get some scores on this so we can move on to the far jollier Strictly Ballroom. <laughs> Ella, we're probably going to be the lowest. Uh, sorry. Uh, maybe three for anticipation, because, again, it's not my thing, but I thought Ethan Hawke was interesting. Two... I'm sorry. Ooh. Three or two? Can I do two point five? I know I can't, can. but I'm going to say on the record that I'm between a two and a three uh, for enjoyment because I was just really disappointed and definitely do in retrospect because the issues that I had while watching frustrated me more. I do want to say very quickly, um, Madeline McGraw, who plays Gwen, again, I'm not sure about her script and stuff. I thought she was fantastic. I thought she put in a really good performance, um, and I'd like her to not necessarily in the black phone the black hat whatever universe um in another film i'd love to see her like have as much to do as mason Taines did so yeah she was great i'm gonna second that also a tiny little girl yelling um curse words as a, an adult so good that is a niche i, Iconic. I can't get enough of <laughs> <laughs> yeah she was great so anna your um, scores are horror I'm- aficionado i'm excited <laughs> I'm going to go three, five, and three. <gasps> I don't have that much of an anticipation for it. I mean, I, I I was anticipating it, but, you know, I watch so many horror films anyway. I'm a little bit, um, you know, keep. I, I know how to keep my expectations in check most of the time. Um, I really did enjoy watching it a lot. Like the actual experience of watching it was great. And I did, and I did, I was tense. There was, there was a, there was one moment where I jumped, you know, that's always great. Although I, jump, scare, jump scares are really cheap. And four and three in retrospect, because I think there's more things that I enjoyed about it that I didn't. I think it's like four would be too generous. I think it's a perfect horror film, but it's a really good horror film and a good year for horror anyway. Um, and I think actually this one sits really nicely um, for audiences who might not want to go kind of full horror, but kind of like that Silence of the Lambs thriller horror space. This is kind of a good one. I think this is a really good one too for horror fans to enjoy. They'll definitely love it. And also for people who are a little bit more in the fence, you know, maybe their friend or their partner or whatever, or their parent, just take them. I think there's something for people the who parent. are more into... Yeah. Yeah. I wish horror films with my parents. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> tale, isn't it? I can't even get my mom to watch Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it kind of like buys into, um, you know, that whole thing of like, don't go off with strangers. See, I told you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think for me, probably four, four, three. Um, I really liked Sinister back in the day. Um, as I was kind of excited for the two of them to team back up. Uh, yeah, four and enjoyment. Loved all the little references. Um I actually was, you know, buying whatever Ethan Hawke was selling. And maybe, yeah, three in retrospect, I think it was perfectly fine. I don't think it's going to kind of go down as the, you know, a great entry in either either person's filmography in terms of Ethan Hawke and Scott Derrickson. But I'm glad to see them back together. Next up, Strictly Ballroom. 
Scott Hastings is a champion ballroom dancer, much to the chagrin of the Australian ballroom dance community. Scott believes in dancing his own steps. Fran is a beginner dancer who has the audacity to ask to be Scott's partner after the unorthodox style causes his regular partner to leave. Together they try and win the Australian Pan Pacific Championships and show the ballroom confederation wrong. So, Anna, the beginnings, the kind of the seeds of what would become Elvis. (laughs) Baz Luhrmann sitting in a fitted black blazer many, many years later. Um, Do you see some of Baz Luhrmann's signatures uh, in this kind of early entry? Oh, 100%. I mean, I really would love to hear Ella's thoughts as the resident Baz fan. Um, (laughs) Uh, you can absolutely see the seeds of it. You know, the the editing style, the, the rapid um, rhythm of everything, the choreography. I think obviously he will take it way, way, way to a different, um, to a different level in his subsequent films. It kind of lacks that polish and that sheen and the slickness of his subsequent kind of American productions. Uh, but I can see, you can absolutely see in retrospect when you rewatch Strictly, uh, Strictly Ballroom what Baz wanted to do, but maybe perhaps didn't have the budget or the, um, the support to do yet, but it's all there. And it's really fascinating actually to see a filmmaker who would have later on in his career, you know, with Elvis now out, such has become you know, for critics of, of Baz Luhrmann, um, a parody of himself, uh, for fans of Baz Luhrmann, like us in the, in the Zoom room here, kind of has a very distinctive style. Um, it's really fascinating to see a filmmaker who from the very, very beginning of his career knew exactly what he was going for. And you know how they say that you artists have like an idea of what a vision of what they want to achieve and their entire work and and the most time that they spend is on kind of trying to come as close as possible to the thing that's in their heads Mm -hmm. you can almost see the strictly dancing is kind of as sketching the thing that he wanted to achieve and it's definitely not all there we can see that afterwards but like you can see you can see the strokes of what he wanted to do but this film, I, I think this is his funniest film. I was absolutely like cracking up. I watched this the first time as, uh, you know, showing my age, uh, you know, a VHS rental with my grandmother. Um, and I kind of vaguely remembered it and remember thinking it was delightful. But it I, it was so much richer when I came back to it, because I think much like Elvis, this is kind of a cultural appropriation film. <laughs> which just kind of shows like you know the fact that like Fran is presented just because she's Spanish like convinced against these sort of I don't know Aryan Barbies that kind of Mm -hmm. populate the strictly ballroom uh the strictly I suppose the Australian ballroom scene but I also loved how low incredibly low the stakes are in this film (laughs) like wow which is very unusual for Baz I mean uh, one I think one Baz-ism that we haven't mentioned is that actually for his characters, the the stakes are always intensely high. And that's Red Carpet trilogy, heightened world. Yeah. And like the stakes are low when we look at it from, you know, a logical point of view. And I absolutely love, you know, the, the, I, I love kind of a competition film, you know, when it's like the stupider, the better, like a hairdressing competition or, (laughs) or, you know, like a wine or cheese tasting competition or something like, give me, give me a film about a hot dog eating comp. I will lap it up. But 
the stakes are so so high people take it so seriously like they will work their entire lives for it and the kind of the structure of these you know the the mockumentary structure works so well for me because the interviewees take it as seriously as the characters who are actually dancing in the film as, as scott and who's our protagonist and, and fran obviously and the competitions and the toxicity and i went down a little youtube rabbit hole of looking at people who actually danced or competed in ballroom dancing and what they thought about Strictly Ballroom and they're like yeah it's all true (laughs) it's all true it's even worse in real life I'm like wow I want to see I want to see a documentary about that yeah but Anna you're so right about like the mockumentary setup I'd forgotten that when I rewatched it I was like again rewatching it in 2022 kind of considering the point that Baz has got to and just how much so many people love to hate him they love to make fun of him I really think that if he did a mockumentary today, it would go down so well because I do think he's got that self-awareness. And I think it was really bold to have that as his debut feature to just be so funny because, yeah, I love the man. I don't think he's very funny, usually. Like, a lo- his, his films have, like, increasingly taken themselves so seriously. As a person, he's very entertaining, he's very funny, but I don't think he... I, I I don't think a lot of his films deliberately want, deliberately want you to laugh with them. Often you're laughing at certain characters and they're silly and they're pathetic or whatever. But tragedy kind of wins most of the time. Um, so I love that. Yeah, I love the mockumentary framing device. I think it works much better with hindsight. I don't know how it would have played at the time. Um, but yeah, because I I first watched Strictly Born a few years ago when when I was kind of deep in moulin rouge like once a month or whatever um and i i was i was i was kind of a bit like offended i was like it's not taking itself seriously enough like it's not you know focus i was just a bit but (laughs) i think another part of that um is the pop music one of my favorite things about baz Luhrmann's films is just how much pop music there is and you know he takes it so seriously like the (laughs) the relationship this man has with the music industry it's insane like i don't know how i mean you know as we've been saying like he's very charismatic he's a very good businessman like he's you know he can make those connections obviously when you're making your debut feature you can't you know he has to do what he can so it's ballroom music and that's fine but Again, I'm speaking about things with like the privilege of hindsight and like, you know, many, many years later and he's got the money and the resources. So for me, his films that have, you know, huge pop soundtracks work better for me. Um, but, you know, I'm being greedy. Like this, this, this works with what it is and where it is. Um, it's just, yeah, it's exciting to see the seeds of it. Um, but like, you know, imagine if there was like, I don't know, a Beyonce track or something. Like, imagine, imagine if Break My Soul was in there. <laughs> I just feel Huge. that, like, I love the moments, particularly with, like, the Pasa Doble, which in this is kind of almost like a religious ritual, um, that those kind of often come down to, like, silence, where you hear nothing but footsteps. And I love with, mm. I think a lot of the time, filmmakers do great things when they have obstacles that maybe they can't afford the massive banger. So it's like, oh, what's a clever way that we're going to still make this moment mm. really powerful and we're just actually going to go to silence? is a thing i i will defend strictly ballroom as being his finest well maybe not his finest but second finest i really like romeo and juliet oh, I, but do you know what i think strictly ballroom has quite a lot in common with romeo and juliet like it's again it's like all of fran's family and everything and it's kind of like oh, how can you dance with her she's not like us she's yeah and you know it's always this star-crossed <laughs> yeah like in every one of his films there's some kind of star-crossed romance love situation whatever it is even in like even in um 
the film you've just been talking about Elvis fantastic cool um you know there is this whole like he was my destiny and the moon and the stars and like angels and devils and you know it's all like it's very extreme and it's like these people could never come together and you've got that from the very start in Strictly Ballroom I think also obsessed with the fact that Fran gets like it's not even a makeover, but it's like a Princess Diary is like, what if she took off her glasses? <laughs> Suddenly, look at her. I always just find that very funny. Just that, that doesn't get old. Every time that comes up, I'm like, ugh, cinema, you know? I do find it really interesting when you mention Ella that Baz is not funny, he's entertaining. And I think that's so on point because it's like an old school approach to entertainment, which is why he's so good with Elvis and so good with Moulin Rouge. And I think you can see the seeds of that in a different way with, with Strictly Ballroom, where I do agree it is funny. I think a lot of that is down to the editing um, mm. and to the, the mockumentary structure of it. But he loves the pizzazz. Like he loves the show aspect of it. He the takes high it so seriously. Yeah. Mm. And it's so earnest. And like the tackiness is earnest. The the seriousness is earnest. And I appreciate that. And I understand why people are sometimes are allergic to him because you know what? People are allergic to earnestness in general. But it, and it comes down to what you were saying from the, at the very beginning when we were talking about maximalism and yes. how it can either be earnest or performative. Mm. I think, the amazing thing about Baz Luhrmann is that all of his maximalism is a performance, but it's always an earnest performance. He's never yes. like it's the performance it's, is not it's, performative. Exactly. Right? It's performing to entertain. It's like yeah, entertaining. Exactly. He knows what he's doing. It's not like about, you know, this is the depths of my soul. It's like, no, mm-hmm. I want to put on a show that keeps people engaged and entertained for an hour yeah. and a half or two hours and 40 minutes. Um, it's not, you know, oh, this will look this way because that's what I'm supposed to mm. do or that's what this, you know, demands. It's like it always comes from an earnest place and an earnest yeah. place is wanting to perform and entertain. Oh, and one final thing that makes, I think, the performance is so effective in the whole like maximalism, which he does, which he's done at every point in his career. I really don't, I saw, um, I saw another critic say this, I think it was Robbie Collin who mentioned on Twitter, he was like, nobody films close-ups like Baz Luhrmann mm, and I think mm. I like Very that's loving I, yeah and I just think within maximalist cinema I think so much of the time you're forced to look at very very wide shots which have so much going on in them and like you know will be with Baz it will just be like a big ballroom or like a big stage or whatever with a million lights and a million dancers and whatever it is and I I think a lot of the time maximalism can be like well look how many things are in this frame Whereas he's just, even in Strictly Ballroom, like the close-ups, like they're ridiculous, but in the best way. It's so, like, you know, I can imagine seeing this in a seminar. Like, it's really breathtaking to see just like how good they are and the detail that's in it and all the colours and like how he gets a certain performance out of his actors and the angles and then like zooms back out. And it's just, I don't know, like his films make you really dizzy, but like in the best way. I love it. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to add on that, I'd also add that nobody really films a dance sequence quite like that. Mm. And you can see this here as well. And I think part of it is also tied into his choice of shots. Like he makes, he doesn't just like pull the camera away so you can see all the footwork and, and the way, you know, like the, the whole scene of the dance. He really gets up close. He wants it to be on the actual dance floor. And he does this as well in, in Moulin Rouge. And in a way, I don't El think Tango it's a... El Tango de Roxanne. Oh, goosebumps. Like, that film needs to be released. I mean, I know it's screening all the time, but God damn it, I want to see it It turned 20 now. last year. Like, I don't know what, why we didn't... What have we done? We failed as a nation. Like, why have we, we not failed as a culture? We used to um, be a society. 
<laughs> but it, you can see that in, in 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 strictly ballroom as well. You know, it's all about dance. They take it so seriously. But my favorite moments when they're dancing is not when things are going well. It's when you see the competition and the bitchiness just through the shots, just through the way that the dancing so is actually moved. It's so good. It's and so dramatic. It really is. It's like I'm in so Baz Luhrmann's film. It's like if you do not dance properly, it's like you'll die. You'll probably die. <laughs> and I love that. And you can even oh. say to Romeo and Juliet, I don't think the party scene is a dance scene, but it's the closest no, thing. To yeah, like it's a the dance same stage. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Probably yeah. my favorite ever Baz Luhrmann scene. My favorite ever party scene, really. Um, pure poetry. If you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, we've got a very different selection with Minions 2, The Rise of Gru, and then two mass shooting films with Elephant and Nitrum. So, yes, thank you. <laughs> a very different flavour. Um, thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you got your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Anna Bogatskaya and Ella Kemp. The podcast is produced by TCA London and edited by Jake Cunningham. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.